Happy Friday. It's time for the Richard Skipper Friday Wrap-Up Show. Who and what are you celebrating today? Richard Skipper believes every day is worth celebrating. But today, we wrap up the week with a dose of positivity. You never know who might show up or what might happen. So get ready. Your skipper is now coming on board, and we are ready to set sail. All aboard. Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating today? Well, I am celebrating the Garden State Film Festival, which is coming up next month. And I have four fabulous filmmakers that are joining us today to talk about their films. Now, before we started, I reached out to our, uh, our audience watching, and Jeannie Miller uh, picked door number two. Who's behind door number two? Well, I think this person will know uh, once they see their trailer on screen. Take a look, everyone. We've got a great show planned. Here it is. All that I really knew about the Holocaust was what I learned in school. I had taken classes in elementary school and middle school, learning about it in beginning of seventh and eighth grade, throughout high school. Even as a teacher, I did not know too much about the Holocaust. Before going on the Holocaust trip, I knew what I thought to be a lot. The biggest thing that really kind of got me was actually the little amount of information you really do learn. My students had a chance to read all the documents to hear from many survivors who came to class. The opportunity to take the students to the places where the Holocaust took place was adding another dimension. As a young person who has learned about the Holocaust in class, it's just so incredible to see what I've learned through my own eyes and experience it firsthand. Being able to go on this journey with fellow classmates and professors and Holocaust survivor Pinka Scooter, I learned more from their experiences than I could ever have learned in the classroom. I think that the visit that had the biggest impact on me was going to Vonsi House, where the final solution to the Jewish question was decided. In one month, 5,000 Jews died, no one killed them with bullets. They died of diseases, from lack of food. To the Jewish ghetto, the Germans allowed the entry of 180 calories per person. You either push to the right or the left. I finished up in that room I showed you. And from there you ran on a corridor, you know, into another barrack where they gave you prisoners were there, they gave you these striped pajamas, but the other people that were slated for to be murdered finished up in guest chambers. In other words, this is was the separation of those who were going to live and those who were going to die. If we don't start looking back at history and bringing it back up and teaching our students and teaching the younger generations about it, then they'll forget about it. They won't really necessarily know what happened and then it's inevitable. It's just going to occur. I think people just need to be more understanding and forget about them seeing somebody else in a box because we're not. You know, there's no boxes. When you learn about any sort of atrocity, it becomes your responsibility to help prevent that. I feel like there's just always going to be questions about the Holocaust and that's why we need to understand it and be taught it in school so that future generations don't allow this to happen again.
Lisa, congratulations. Thank you. Thank yes. you. The Holocaust is a difficult subject. Yes, it, of course. But it, it, what it, it, I mean, I can tell already the love and attention that went into this film. Um, congratulations, number one, on being part of the Garden State Film Festival uh, and for having such a meaningful film be a part of it. I want to begin by asking you, what was the impetus for you to create this film in the first place? Obviously, the message is very important that we don't forget, that we do remember, but there has to be a moment for you uh, that said, this is the fi next film for me. How did that all come about? I think it's because, well, I know it's because a group of students who are not Jewish and who do not have a direct connection to the Holocaust wanted to take a trip of this nature. And I thought to myself, wow, it's hard enough when you have grandparents or great grandparents to witness what happened. But some of the students were taking their first trip ever, you know, the fir their first time on an airplane. And boy, they got so involved in, in advance to study about the Holocaust and then during the trip and, and after. And what was your connection with these kids? How did you find out, number one, that this was taking place? I was working on a film about children survivors of the Holocaust, and I filmed an interview at St. Elizabeth University, which at that at that point was still the College of St. Elizabeth. And um, the head of the Holocaust and Genocide Education Center told me about this trip and asked me if I would want to participate. And that was going back into 2016. And I thought, wow, what a great opportunity. So. And the participants that were part of this, are you saying that they were not Jewish? That's right. That's right. They they are they were students at the College of St. Elizabeth in Morristown, New Jersey. And um they studied most of them had studied the Holocaust with Professor Sepinwall or Professor Margaret Roman, but some of them hadn't even. Mm -hmm. And in one case, there was a student and her grandmother traveling together, and in another, a mother and daughter traveling together. And that was really neat that they shared this experience. And how much time did you spend with the kids before you embarked on the trip? Not too much. No, I think we probably met <laughs> on the bus on the way to Kennedy Airport. Wow. Wow. But you get close really fast when you're on a on a trip of that nature because the days are long and difficult. And then in the evening, you kind of want to relax. And we did things like play cards against humanity and other things at night. That's After amazing. a difficult day, visiting concentration camps and um, ghettos and um, museums. So my guess and- you Places can... where the planning of the Holocaust happened. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but uh, my guess is that these kids probably were already, they knew each other, they were all part of each other, uh, you know, knowing each other, and that you were essentially an outsider coming to cover this film. Am I correct? Uh, this uh, uh, trip, am I right or wrong on that? Correct. Yes. Yes. Uh, so were they very welcoming and open for you coming in and, be, you know, telling um their story? Uh, were they eager to tell their story and what they were learning along the way? Or uh, was it just instant friendship from the beginning? They were eager to share their um, reactions, but they might not have articulated them 
so well because it's so hard to know how to put things that are so upsetting into words. So what we did was we gathered the group together two years later and the students reflected on uh, the impact of the trip and we filmed their reactions and included those in the film. But they were very welcoming to me and they helped carry equipment. So that was, it was kind of a group effort really. Oh, that's wonderful. Sound equipment, microphones and camera lenses, stuff like that. So how, you know, what, what was the uh, average age of these kids, number one? 20, 21. So, I mean, they were young adults. Um, I was thinking more in the teenage realm, but they're uh, older than that. So when you, um, what was the biggest surprise for you in terms of what they did know or did not know prior to working on this? See, there was one student who was 18 and it was her first time ever going on an airplane and she flew from Kennedy Airport into Berlin and um, that's a long flight. That is you know? a long flight. So um, the question was... The question is, what, did, uh, what surprised you about what they knew about the Holocaust and what they did not know about the Holocaust? I think the same things that most people know in general, which is that before the Nazis attacked Jews and homosexuals and gypsies, they they planned um, attacks on their own people. And that was done through medical experiments. And that was called T4. And we visited the site where that happened on our first day in Berlin. And also that there were a lot of um, people who did try to save Jews through the resistance and through um, hiding Jews and any in any either as a resist members of the resistance or Holocaust rescuers, you risked your life to do so. And we got to hear one woman talk about what her family did to hide a, a young Jewish woman. And they accepted the risk and they saved they saved her. And we we we're not so aware of that. You know, we hear about how horrible um conditions were, but there were people that really did try to help and that were not in favor of the Holocaust. Wow. Uh, how much time passed between the last time you saw these uh, young adults uh, and the completion of the film? Let's see, we saw each other last, oh, let's see, a year, I think. And that was because of COVID, really. Mm -hmm. Like we talked on, on um, Zoom, but we didn't talk, you know, see each other in person. And then we got to see each other. We had a reunion when the film was shown for Crystal Knock last October of 2021. And that was exciting to see the finish. I was reading this morning, and it's either today or yesterday uh, is the anniversary of the, in, uh, of the birth of the Nazi party. Oh. Yeah, and very interesting that you and I are having this conversation today. Um, again, I want to congratulate you. I, you're not going to go anywhere. You're going to stick around because we're going to talk about uh, the creative process a in a little more in depth in a few moments. But you're going to get to bring up our next guest. Um, so, and you do that by picking either I'm going to say number one, two, or three. And this is tricky because um, a couple of them are you know, uh, actually uh, one, two, three, or four. I see that another guest has just joined us. 
Okay, let's say three. Okay, and I'm gonna bring on I'm gonna bring on uh, the um, trailer for our next film so that they know what I'm gonna bring them on together. Uh, they, I think they already know who they are, uh, but here it is. And I watched the film last night, Born in Chicago. Everyone, you've got to see this film. And here's the trailer. When most people think of Chicago blues, the beginning was Muddy Waters. He was like a god to me. I just couldn't even imagine ever knowing someone of his greatness. Were Muddy and Wolf friends? No. Enemies? Yeah. <laughs> Anytime you have Howlin' Wolf, the Muddy Waters, Little Walter, James Cotton, Junior Wells, and Otis Royce, Willie Dixon, everybody was there. Rock and roll come from the blues. I don't care how you play it. It's the blues. Michael said, man, we could go down to the south side of Chicago. Come on, man, we're going to go down and sit in with Howling Wolf. Michael Bloomfield, he got a friend with him. He's going to play the keyboards, you know. And I, I started to shake. And Wolf did. I don't care what color you hear, these guys can play. I was walking around the neighborhood, sitting on some steps in front of an apartment building was a white guy playing blues on the guitar and drinking a quart of beer. It was Butterfield. We were all in Chicago. Muscle White, Bloomfield, Paul Butterfield, Corky Siegel, Jim Schwal, Barry Goldberg, Steve Miller, White Kids, Nuts for Blues. Big John's was great, man. It was Butterfield's home base, and they were the center of that scene. Buddy Guy used to come tearing out here with his guitar and his 100-foot cord and literally go out in the middle of the street here and stop traffic everywhere. Harvey wanted to be in those clubs playing in the meanest, toughest places. Harvey's one of the first white guitar players that was coming in the black club. If you can play, you're halfway home. I was in Chicago just at this peak period of time. It couldn't have happened anywhere but Chicago. You know, everybody talks about it like we were these little white boys. We were competing with Howling Wolf for his gig. It wasn't like we were getting a free pass for anything. This band is loaded with artists that have a history. I want people to know about it. It wasn't all the Rolling Stones and Eric Clapton. Was the Chicago Blues guys. John and Bob, welcome to the show. Meet Lisa and uh, congratulations on an amazing film. Thank, Thank you. you, Richard. Really glad you like it. You know, I, I, I couldn't, I want to watch it again. Uh, there's so much in it, and there are so many layers to this story. Uh, first of all, uh, how did you two come together on this project? And who got the initial idea to start work on this incredible film? Well, it probably goes back to 2008. I'm here, I'm based in Chicago. I'm a filmmaker, and I knew the story and loved the blues, and I just felt like I was in the right place at the right time, you know? I met Tim Martin, who became the executive producer of the film, and he's got a group called Chicago Blues Reunion, which includes several of the stars of the film. And we shot a concert that they did at a venue in Chicago called Park West. And once we saw the interviews that we did with the musicians and all of the surrounding vibes and how beautiful it was all coming together, we, we knew we had to go forward and make the documentary. Well, thank you for doing it. It's a great film. Uh, Bob, I mean, how did you get involved in this uh, with John? Have you two worked well, together before prior to this? 
Well, you know, making documentaries is a difficult process and, and particularly making music documentaries because uh, there's a lot of money involved for music publishing and archival rights and things like that. So as often the case, if you look at the history of a lot of these music documentaries that are made, they're very long in gestation. Sometimes they take decades to get completed. And such was the case with this. And unfortunately, the, the, the production went on so long, John had other things to do. He had other films to produce. So it was more of a handoff. Uh, so other people were involved in the project after John uh, handed it off. And uh, a number of years went by and the film went through a number of different cuts and gestations. Uh, and it evolved from being a concert film with a lot of background material that John had, uh, had done uh, and it, it evolved into less of a concert film and more of a historical documentary. So my my wife and my partner, Christina Keating, and I uh, have done a lot of uh, uh, music documentaries. And uh, the money people behind this film eventually came to us and asked us if we might uh, be able to uh, help reimagine the film as a, as a historical documentary uh, and, and to take all the work that had been done uh, before and shape it into its its final form, and 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 I was able to fold in uh, material that I had gathered from other inter from other films that I had made previously, and uh, it was actually a, a great collaboration because w what John had done, uh, the DNA of this film, the, the original interviews, uh, were just so rich with material uh, that uh, you know the hard part was finding the fillet, that you know finding the absolute the, the best moments because there were so many good moments and also to uh, construct them in such a way that the story arc really worked and it tied in all these smaller stories uh, of all these different guys so that it, it told a, a bigger story arc. And to that end, uh, you know, John knew where all the, uh, you know, where, where all the riches were. He, you know, he knew where all the bodies were buried, so to speak. So anytime Christine and I, uh, in our process of putting together our final version of this film, John was always avail available uh, in a very collaborative way. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to have uh, helped uh, this film come across the, the finish line. Congratulations again. John, he mentions the final project, uh, the product. How many final products were there before you completed the film? Because there's so many layers to this film. Oh, you know, Bob, would you say maybe five? You know, there was a <laughs> one. I saw one. a couple different versions over the years. <laughs> Now I was seeing the film. I was seeing versions of the film before I was ever involved in the project because I was making a documentary about Michael Bloomfield, who is very prominent yeah. in this story. Uh, and to be honest with you, before I ever knew I was going to have any involvement in this film, you know, like one filmmaker against, uh, not against, but uh, you know, it's a competitive business, and it's and and there was a lot of overlap in the story. So I was very interested in it. So anytime I could get my hands on uh, uh, a bootleg copy of this co of this film that was floating around or get invited to a screening, I, I, I was there because I wanted to see the progress of this film, how it was going. And in an earlier incarnation, I'd call it Cut 1.5. It uh, played at South by Southwest. It played at Lincoln Center and uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I think, and uh, lots of other prestigious places. And... Um, now the new version is is making the rounds, and it won Best of Fest at Palm Springs last month, and we were we won Best Director at the First Glance Film Festival in Philadelphia. So the momentum was moving in the right direction. So another layer of this film is the narration, and Dan Aykroyd. Uh, how I mean, how did he get involved in this? Well, um, 
when I came out of the project, uh, uh, San Francisco music journalist uh, Joel Selvin, who's an old friend of mine, he wrote for the San Francisco Chronicle for decades and now writes uh, very uh, well-respected books uh, about music. Uh, and we had collaborated on a couple projects before. So uh, he came on around the same, same time I did and wrote uh, a script that was sort of the, the blueprint for the film. Uh, and, and, and gave us what ultimately became the narration for the film. And, uh, you know, when we finished it, uh, Joel has a, I had Joel, since they were his words, I had him read the scratch track when I was editing. Uh, and, and Joel had a very, uh, a very, uh, effective delivery, but it was a little over the top for me. It was a little too much Walter Winchell. I used to keep telling him to yeah. back the Walter Winchell on the read, but, um, when we finished it, you know, some it's it's an opportunity if you can get a, a celebrity narrator, it helps, uh, you know, helps your film break through the noise if you've got a name as that narrator. So someone suggested Dan Aykroyd. Initially, I rejected it because I didn't want the I didn't want the association with the Blues Brothers. Although that's a great act mm -hmm. and they, great music and has a great legacy, I didn't necessarily want that uh, shading what this film was about in any way. And so I, it took me a while to sort of be convinced. And then I, then I thought, okay, if Dan reads it really, if Dan reads it straight, he's, he's really a good guy to do this. He's, he knows the story and he spent a lot of time in Chicago, although he's from Canada. And uh, so sure enough, uh, we reached out to his management. And I, when I spoke to his manager, I said, I, no, I don't want uh, Elwood Blues. You know, I want Dan Aykroyd. His manager assured me that we could not afford Elwood Blues. So you got Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> That's good. So John, um, is the film the film that you set out to create? I know we've you mentioned there there these other uh, versions of this, but ultimately, what we what I saw last night is this the film that you had hoped that everyone will eventually see? It's a different film. It's a different film. It has the same vibe, the same story of these tough, hard scrabble white kids who happen to be able to play. I mean, that's at the key of this. It isn't just being young and excited and uh, fawning all over your heroes as these guys did. They were able to get up on the stage and play with them and become equal, if only for a moment or two. Um, that vibe is still there. Yes, the, the focus has shifted a little bit and there are some different characters involved and some characters that weren't involved that are now. Uh, I, I should say that we're involved before that aren't now, but uh, it's having the same uh, effect on audiences that I hope the original film would. That's great. So I want both of you to stick around. We're going to bring on our next guest right now. And again, we're, like I said, we're going to talk a little bit about the creative process with all of you as we dig a little deeper. Uh, so John, I'll let you pick our next guest. Uh, door number one or door number two? Two, obviously. Okay, and um, and he just arrived here. So, James, I'm glad that you're able to join us. Uh, first of all, James, can you hear me? Yeah, it's great to be all here. Right. Thank you. Uh, so, James, um, I didn't get a lot of information on your film. It's called Chateau Laurier. Am I correct? Yeah. Chateau Laurier, yeah. Yes, and I'm going to bring this up here. Um, first of all, tell us a little bit about the film. We don't, unfortunately don't have the trailer here, but I will put any links that you have uh, later on my YouTube channel. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is an episodic project that you're working on. Am I correct? Yeah, it's a drama series, a period drama, episodic, uh, digital series. So it's six times 10 minutes, uh, set in 1912 Ottawa, Canada. 
And how did you get involved in this project to begin with? And uh, and how did it get you to the Garden State Film Festival? Um, well, I grew up in Ottawa. I live in Toronto now, but uh, I grew up in Ottawa. And the Chateau Laurier is an existing historic hotel. It's the Grand Dame Hotel built in 1912. And I always wanted to do, you know, a, a fun uh, drama set there because it has ghosts. It has all kinds of history and drama. Even to this day, there's a lot of drama that takes place in it, you know, kind of like the uh, Park Plaza or a place like that, where you know, even to this day, it's it's positioned right in the right beside Parliament Hill, mm -hmm. which is our uh, which is our like Capitol building. Um, so there's politicians going through the lobby every day. You know, there's rock stars, famous people, wealthy people, people who are pretending to be wealthy. Uh, you know, hookers, drug dealers, uh, the entire echelon of uh, the wealthy and otherwise influential. Um, and to this day, it still happens. Um, so I, I just wanted to do a period drama set there. So it's a it's a fictionalized drama about a family who owns the hotel and the patriarch uh, gets murdered and uh, the kids fight over it. And there's a there's a. Um, there's a, a, a sort of a king of kind of kind of like Chalky White in Boardwalk Empire. There's a king of Lower Town um, who's Cajun, uh, so he speaks a crazy dialect of French and English and Cajun, and he has a great swagger and uh, he's kind of the villain of the story. He but he uh, ends up owning half the hotel because he controls all the tradespeople who built it. So it's kind of a it's a it's a fun romantic uh, mis murder mystery kind of film and interestingly in 1912 when they built this hotel imagine it's like the park plaza this very fancy hotel the 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 city of Ottawa was a was a shithole it was this kind of you know frontier land um where uh the the actual history of it is they had moved the capital of canada from kingston up to ottawa to get away from the american border because uh, in the 1800s, it was very contentious. You know, there was war between the Brits and the uh, the Americans. And uh, so they had moved the capital to this logging town, Ottawa, and they and they end up building this hotel right in the middle of Lower Town, which is kind of immigrants and, you know, all kinds of other sleazy things at the time, and Upper Town, which is Protestant and very proper and trim and uh and everything intersects in this hotel so that's kind of the idea behind the show uh is it easier or harder to get a, an a, dig, a digital series such as this into a film festival as opposed to a film uh is is that an easy process to do um, and how many film festivals have you been a part of with this it sounds amazing yeah it's it's um so it's a digital series. The first, there's a, there's an entire industry that is doing digital series now. Um, so you know there's short films and there's feature films and there's docs and short docs. Mm -hmm. and there's a new category called digital short form uh, series. There's even an Emmy category for it now. So um, this kind of came out uh, in in the last decade maybe. There's a there's a, a festival circuit specifically for web series. Um, but now because they become popular, a lot of festivals have series or episodic categories. Um, so in Canada, we have the, the Canadian Screen Awards, which is kind of like our Oscar Emmys. There's a category for digital series now, short form uh, fiction and or nonfiction. Um, 
And uh, so many festivals now have uh, episodic categories. So a, a festival like the Toronto Film Festival, the Toronto National Film Festival, which is a massive, you know, can uh, and Sundance level film festival, uh, they have an episodic category, but they they play Netflix shows. Like they'll premiere a Netflix show or an Amazon show. They won't play a little show like ours. Our show, even though it's a it's a period drama, it's very low budget. Um, but having said that, and been on the festival circuit with it, this is our second season. So the first season did the rounds of the festivals and won lots of awards. This show, this season is bigger and it's more epic because we did get funding for it. Um, in the U.S., I, I bless you guys for doing indie films, but I know there's no funding other than, you know, your credit cards and, and you know, wealthy patrons. Um, unless you get a Netflix deal or a studio deal or something like that. So you're telling us that no one's just throwing money at all of you to do these films? <laughs> yeah. So in Canada, it's even worse because there's no rich people that fund films. Wow. Um, but there are there is government funding because, you know, we're the, the great uh, socialist nation. Uh, there is government funding and there's tax breaks. So that's how this was funded. This was funded with uh, provincial money uh, and federal money taxpayer money but it's uh it's equity so if we ever make any money we have to give it back wow. but the expectation is that you you won't make any money you'll just somehow advance uh the film form and advance canadian culture and and they're happy enough with that so there's there's actually more money in digital series in canada than there is in feature films because right now you know everybody is making $250,000 million dollar feature film dramas that are shot in 10 to 14 days. That's kind of the entire movie industry up here um, with the exception of the service work that, you know, we do for Netflix and, you know, big American studios. The crews are happy with that, but as a filmmaker, you know, you don't really have access to that any more than you do in the U.S. You know, you guys can go out and get a Netflix deal for your doc, but it's uh, that money is dwindling very, very quickly. Well, God bless all of you for having the drive and determination to get these stories told. Um, I'm going to show the trailer for our uh, final film that we're showing today. And then we will bring our next guest on and then we will uh, continue the conversation. Awesome. Have some candy. That's gross candy. Yeah, that's old people candy, Grandma. There's no room for old people candy. Not with this grandma. You want from the front, I'll touch it from the back. Grandma! Thomas, get out from under there! <laughs> now that, talk about a, t a teaser. <laughs> Welcome to the show, John. Oh, thank you for having me. It's nice to follow up on like such poignant storytellers. And thank you for waiting patiently in the wings. Um, tell us about this film and how this film came about. Uh, well, it, I guess uh, it started over the pandemic and you're sitting around and there's not a whole lot going on and uh, you start to get bored and that kind of like had this, uh, trying to capture the feeling of, of uh, trying to stay busy to not deal with your personal problems. Mm -hmm. And so really taking that emotion and uh, I was talking with a friend of mine who's a photographer and he was like let's make a movie I've got two kids and a kitchen 
and it was like, okay, great. So we came up with, uh, you know, three, four different concepts and tried to force that emotion through the, you know, the plot that we put together uh, in his kitchen. And uh, yeah. And was it very improvisational in terms of what everyone brought to the table? Uh, improvisational as in I was the only person on set that had ever done, had ever made a, a film. So wow. it was kind wow. of, uh, it was, so I guess, especially with the, the children um, and especially with the younger child, uh, Ollie, uh, there was a lot of improv, whether we wanted it or not. <laughs> so these, these two kids have never done any type of work at all on stage or uh, screen. Uh, no, no, they were just, just the two boys of our cinematographer. Wow. And what was the experience like? I mean, you can't be in their mindset, but what do you think the experience was like for these two kids uh, to be working on this film? And have they seen the final product? And what's their take with everything? Well, I mean, you know, first of all, it was like it was like a really great honor to actually to work with children in this in this uh, this uh, context. Uh, I, I was really looking forward to the, the challenge of that and also kind of like as a test for my own like as a filmmaker my own personal process of like just putting taking an idea and taking it from inception to projection you know so uh bringing the kids in uh we 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 planned for that so we gave us an extra actually added a, just a whole extra day to the shooting schedule to take into consideration that the children don't have any type of technique mm -hmm. or craft uh and so it was a really great test for my process to kind of help them develop something so that we could, so that's something that I could, you know, tag into or tether them to, uh, you know, to move the story along. Uh, and it actually, they kind of divided up into two very specific types of actors. Uh, one of them was the, uh, Henry was, uh, the older one and, uh, he was, uh, more intuitive. Uh, mm -hmm. he was definitely more, uh, picking up on the metaphor and, and what we were trying to do. And then Oliver was more about the ex just being in the moment and uh, just a big ball of energy and really didn't care much about the story, but cared about, you know, just kind of doing what needed to be done. And that kind of was uh, with the older child, it was more explaining why I needed him to do something a certain way. And the younger one was more like the uh, Oliver being like, well, if you give me one more piece of candy, I'll give you another take. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. Was there a lot of candy on the set? Exactly. So he was more of a negotiator, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to, to get whatever I needed out of him. And the grandmother, tell us about her. So that's Alice. And Alice uh, is a, uh, she's, she was retired. Uh, so we, we brought her out of retirement. Uh, she had never done a film before. She had done a lot of theater. We shot it in Dallas, Texas. So she'd done a lot of theater in Dallas. Wow. And uh, Alice Montgomery is her name. And uh, shout out to Alice. Hello, Alice. And uh, it was just- uh, like Alice Summer Musicals, uh, those theater companies. Exactly, uh, exactly. And- was a professional uh, actress. Was, sorry? She is a professional actress. Oh, absolutely. And we wanted to, I, I because of Henry and Oliver and their lack of technique, I wanted to make sure that we brought in actors who had one and okay. if anything to help me kind of help manage uh, you know, what we were doing. Wow. Well, it's amazing. I can't wait to see uh, the final project. I want to talk to each of you and I'll start with you, Lisa, um, with the doing the uh, film circuit, uh, these film festivals. 
what was the biggest obstacle that you had to face to get you, let's talk specifically about Garden State Film Festival. What is the biggest obstacle that you've had to face and how did you get past that obstacle? Uh, I think the length of our film is a, is a bit challenging. Our film is 30 minutes. It could have been an hour and 30 minutes, but we wanted it to be 30 minutes. And that length is difficult to get into film festivals. So we just kept our fingers crossed and we've been in several and we won some awards. But film festivals like shorter films because they plan blocks of shorts. And so if there are if films are 15 minutes or less, they can include more block, more films into the block. And that's better for planning. Uh, same question, John. Uh, what's the biggest obstacle that you faced uh, to get to the finished product of the film? Let's go with that. Locating and paying for the archival footage, probably, you know. Once you found something, then comes the whole negotiation and sometimes unsuccessful of figuring out how you're going to pay for it. And, um, you know, a lot of the footage in our film is eight millimeter color footage that Sam Lay, the drummer, gave to us. And uh, could the film have been made without that? I don't know. And Bob, could it have been made without the contacts that you have for archival footage? Right. You know, uh, a lot of it, so much of what John and I do uh, when it comes to working with archival footage is, uh, is based on relationships, uh, both in terms of being able to negotiate a fair rate uh, to be able to afford it and also just even know who's got it. Uh, and, you know, we have our go-to guys, but even so, it's, you, once you think you've seen everything, more stuff uh, appears. There was footage that uh, I didn't know about when I was finishing my Mike Bloomfield documentary that surfaced before I started working on this project. And that wound up being the footage that opens up this film. So you always have to keep your eyes open. But uh, in terms of the, the film festival thing, uh, you know, it, it, it really is, it really is a crapshoot until you get, until you get into that first name festival. Uh, uh, it really is like buying a lottery ticket because these festivals have so many films to screen. So to break through the noise is very difficult. Once you've been in a prestige festival, and our film has fortunately been in both the Mill Valley Film Festival and the Palm Springs International Film Festival, and those are festivals that other festivals look at. So when, when it's, it's kind of like when they see that your film has been in that festival, that almost gives you like, oh, well, maybe we should take a look at that. And you have a more, you're more likely to be seen in that situation than if you're just entering through film uh, freeway, which is often just like buying a lottery ticket to a festival. Wow. Well, James, that'll bring me to my question for you. Uh, when you're working on a project such as this, um, in the back of your mind, or maybe in the front of your mind, are you thinking film festivals as you're doing the work? Or is that something that comes absolutely secondary to the work that you're doing? Um, no, we're thinking film festivals because it's a, it, it's a self-distributed thing. Um, Shameless plug. It's on Apple TV and Amazon Prime as a as a rent or buy. Also Google Play and Vimeo on demand. So if you just search at Chateau Laurier, you can you can buy it. Um, the uh, for us the festival circuit is a great way to get it out there because otherwise we don't have a marketing budget. So it's just social media and you know a little bit of money here and there for things like that. But getting it into a festival is really great, and especially you know festivals like like Garden State that are, are real festivals. You know, they have a red carpet, they have a party, they have awards, they have, you know, things like that, which I call them kind of the mid-sized festivals. 
a film like our show like I was not going to get into can it's not going to get into not even we didn't get into south by southwest so you know we're we're in that kind of mid-sized festivals but they're very enthusiastic we have a lot of online festivals which are good too but it's not the same for audience building um you know you really need your picture on the red carpet you need to win an award that has hardware that you can get a picture of to share mm -hmm. uh, an audience of maybe 500 people or a few hundred at least that you can go and talk to and you know then they leave they met the filmmaker they heard they saw the film they like it they tell people and just to touch on what you guys said earlier for sure the film festival programmers all go to each other's film festivals so once you get into one and you win an award, then it opens the doors for all the rest. And it's just the festival circuit is tough. You know, congrats to everyone for getting into this festival. I think we played there. I've had other films played there, so I think they kind of know who I am. So that helps. But, uh, you know, film festivals get 9,000 submissions and they're playing 200 to 300 films, you know, like... I've been on juries of smaller festivals and you, your eyes are bleeding because you just can't watch, you know, that many films. You're going to watch a hundred feature films like Sundance. That's why huh. it's hard to get into Sundance. They have 9,000 feature films submitted. With the Academy Awards and with SAG and every, they, they send out screeners. Are screeners sent out as well? Or does everything happen right there at the film festival? Everything is online now. So there's a thing called Film Freeway. So you could submit, which is fantastic. And the programmers like it because they just watch everything online on their laptops now. Or maybe it's plugged into their TV, but they're not in a cinema watching endless amounts of films the way they used to maybe 10 years ago. But, I, I you know, how, how does any film festival deal with, uh, you know, 5,000 or more films? Like, after a while, they just they can't handle it. And they're trying to be specific about, you know, programming films together or certain movements or certain topics every year. But even in Canada, they, they have like 300 feature films from indie filmmakers sent to TIFF, the Toronto Film Festival, and they play 30 of them. So they're just, there's pretty well zero chance you're going to get your movie into TIFF. And if any of you ever do get it into TIFF, my God, it's an incredible thing. But it's very hard to get into Cannes or TIFF or Sundance or even South by is hard to get into. Uh, you know, uh, Tribeca impossible to get into. You get into any of those festivals, it's it's life changing. Or at least you're you're at the table, and then you got to fight it out with the other 300 films that actually did get in wow. that have bigger stars than you do. <laughs> so yeah. it's you know, uh, the fight never ends. John, I want to ask you how hands on are you in terms of the process of getting into film festivals? Um, do you do this yourself or do you have assistants or people that are working to do that so that you can focus on the film itself? There's no assistance. In the, <laughs> you know, uh, we do it ourselves. Bob has been handling it all by himself for this one. I've done it for my other films, uh, which I'd like to get a plug in for. If you like the blues, look up Sam Lane, bluesland.com. Uh, mm -hmm. The song about the drummer or horn from the heart the paul butterfield story mm -hmm. also on most of the streaming services but um bob you want to pick up on that it's you know i i uh, i keep uh i keep looking at the film freeway every week and i don't pay attention to the uh amount of money that i've spent on submissions i just ignore that you know it just goes to paypal and it's like 
It's like paying the gas bill. Right. And, uh, and you take a look at your submissions and you take a look at, you know, where you're, where you're at and how many you've been accepted to. And I'll tell you on, on this film, I'd say, you know, maybe I've submitted to uh, 50 film festivals. I think we've been in 10, uh, which, you know, which is a pretty good batting average, you know, in this business. Uh, but now what's happening is because we got into a couple of the uh, upper tier festivals, I, I now get invitations. Uh, and that's nice. That doesn't mean you're going to get in. <laughs> you know, I got I, one particular film festival I won't mention. They really kept me going until the 11th hour. And, and then uh, we got uh, shut out in favor of the uh, uh, documentary about the Indigo Girls. So uh, wow. you never know how these things are going to you just you just do it. You know, it's part of it's funny. I, I, I made a film about a half dozen years ago. Uh, with another co-director about uh, a great songwriter uh, producer uh, named uh, uh, Burt Burns. And the film was made by his son, Brett Burns, who brought me on uh, as a co-director. And I remember he was catching a, a smoke outside of our hotel at South By. And he, he we got into South By, so that was a big deal. And he was having a cigarette, and he says, boy, because we worked on this thing really hard for a year. And he says, it's so great to have all that work behind us. And I just laughed at him. And he mm -hmm. says, what do you think? What's so funny? I said, buddy, the work has just begun. You know, this is, you have a film now that now the job really starts, which is to get people to see it. And that's a, that's the thing that people don't realize. They think you make a film and the world opens up for you. No, it's like anything else. You have to work it. And the other goal with the with this film is to get the stars of the film who aren't working that much right now back out there. You know, our story is about how these white guys in bringing the blues to rock and roll helped revitalize their mentors' careers. And that was just kind of a last hurrah to get, you know, these these last 15 guys were so great, you know, into the public and appreciated the way they deserve. Has this shown at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Not, this this particular version of the film has not, uh, I've been in talks with them. You know, it's been difficult with COVID and everything to get the, get booked into the series. They put every, put out hold on their film series for a couple of years. You know, we kind of got screwed by the COVID thing because just as the film was finished, we over they, they, you know, at Palm Springs, they got us into Palm Springs a year ago. And then a week before the uh, festival happened, uh, it got canceled. And mm. uh, but we were fortunate that they invited us back for 2023 this year. And we actually uh, we actually got to do that. Uh, I had another film that was in South by uh, and it got canceled in 2020 again. That was the South by in 2020 was the very first thing, major event that got shut down. And it was like the first domino. And I was thinking at the time, oh, poor me, you know, like the world's against me. My film's not going to get the show at South by. And then, you know, the NBA closed down and the uh, March Madness closed down and then the whole world shut down. I, I started realizing, oh, it isn't just me. But COVID dearly did put a monkey wrench into the whole film festival circuit uh, for a couple of years. Everything went online. But it's just not the same, right? John, I was going to say, sorry to just jump in about festivals. Yes, it's, it's quite disheartening because uh, it's very arbitrary sometimes. So you know, the filmmakers shouldn't get down. Sometimes you'll get into one festival and win awards, and and then the, you don't even get into the next festival, and you're just like, you know, I don't know, it's the same film, different audience. I wanted to ask each of you though, how how did you finance your films? Because I know that the music doc rights is it can be a killer. 
Well, for me personally, born in Chicago uh, was a, a work for hire. I'm a migrant film worker, and I, I go to who will write me a check when it goes to working on their I, my, my own films that I work on. But this was a film that was out there. Uh, I believe it started, uh, John, you can tell it. Tell me it started with uh, with you and, and Tim Martin. And Tim Martin, I think, put in the initial amount of money. And I don't know who there were other people involved who put money in over the years. And then a guy named Richard Foos, who's a friend of mine, who uh, started um, Rhino Records years ago and now owns a company called Shout Factory. He came in the end and wrote the checks at the end to get the film finished. So I didn't have to go out and raise money for this. But I, I, I do seem to be uh, shouldering a lot of the the uh, the work in terms of getting the word out on the film, which I'm happy to do. No. What about you, Lisa? How did you finance your your Holocaust doc? We ran a Kickstarter campaign and raised money that way. And then after people started to see and hear about it, we got some private donations to our um, fiscal sponsor, which is New York Women in Film and Television. But again, it's that's you know very very hard on the on the topic of archival footage, we didn't have to pay for the archival footage that we used because it was, um, a lot of it was available at no cost through the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. So on that end, we didn't have to spend the money that you guys had to spend for music rights, I think. Wow. Uh, John, same question, John Huggins. Oh uh, yeah, private equity and chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, chocolate. You sold a lot of chocolate? Oh, no, no. I'm just paying the children. No. no. <laughs> uh, God bless if all actors could do that. And a right. lot of us do get just the chocolate. Uh, so, um, John, is there um, a certain protocol in terms of entering these film festivals? John Huggins, I'm asking. Um, or um, is it different for each film festival in terms of the process of going into the film festival? Um, I, I would say that, um, every time I make a film, I try to do it. I try to go about the process, that particular process in a different way. I mean, cause each particular, you know, story has a certain way in which, you know, it, it should be marketed or in moving forward. So like, for example, uh, for this particular project, I was like, I'm going to try to really, really hang on to the rules. So like, it was like, okay, so the genre is going to be child in peril. It's going to be kind of pop. It was going to be a little bit of uh, Toby Ho Hooper. Uh, and we're going to make it as like 10 minutes, like, which is a really good length for a short film, like to kind of increase the opportunity for it to get into a festival and uh, just really try to just follow the rules as much as possible. And then, and then try to do something a little special on top of it. Uh, Lisa, I have a question for you. When you finish a film and you are trying to get it into a film festival, is there a certain window of time that you're allotted because of the timing of the film coming out? Or does that really uh, weigh into when and how you get into the film festivals? I think um, Film Freeway, which we've been talking about, is a film festival submission website. And usually before COVID, there was a a limit of maybe you had to have finished your film in the past two years. And I don't know, Bob, do you think it's changed a little bit? Is there more flexibility? I think it's a little bit looser, but I'm still not, I'm still finding that I've, our film was finished too long. We finished in 2020, our film. So uh, I, I, there's a lot of festivals that I would like to submit to that I just don't even bother because they, I'm past their window of opportunity. 
And John Anderson, do you know how many films are actually in the film festival? Let's talk specifically about the Garden State Film Festival. Um, and once you get into the film festival, uh, I'm guessing that timing is everything. Is there more than one screening of the film or is it just, are you given a certain block of time and you know it's hit or miss? What's the story there? In terms of number of films in the festival, does anybody on the panel know how many? No. I, I don't know that. Screenings, I've heard about one. Um, and yes, it's a matter of, you know, is it a nice day outside? You know, are, are people, is it gonna, are they gonna run in from the rain? When we came back from Palm Springs, it was beautiful weather. Everybody was in a festive mood. I had a couple extra tickets for every screening and we were able to get people hyped up. And, you know, I think that that helped us get better ratings down the way. So it's, yeah, it's all about luck. And if you're lucky enough to be there, the energy you put into it. Wow. Well, I can't believe this. This hour flew for me. I hope you all, all of you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, I do want to say that uh, thank you for your creativity. Uh, and anytime any of you uh, have a message or any project that you want to get out there, I hope that you'll consider me and keep me on your uh, radar. And you're welcome. There's always room for you at the table on this show. Um, I'm going to give my final comments for the day. And then I'm going to give each of you a chance to have your final word. It can be about anything that we spoke about today that you want to build upon anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message that you want to leave everyone with today. Uh, and when I finish, Lisa, I will turn it over to you. And when you finish, you'll pick the next person and so on and so on and so on. Uh, the sure. last person, don't worry about how to end the show because as soon as you say goodbye, the final credits will roll. Uh, I want to thank everybody uh, for tuning in today. Uh, this is about the Garden State Film Festival. Uh, all of these films, uh, look for their links, everything on my YouTube channel. Uh, please check out not only these projects, but other projects they're doing as well and support the filmmaker. And if there's a Kickstarter campaign or any way that any of you are able to contribute in any way, uh, either if it's nothing more than spreading the word, that helps tremendously. So it's very important that we all do that. Uh, those of you who watch the show know that I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Uh, pick up the phone and call someone that you haven't spoken to in a while. Not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, but a phone call. And let that person know how they matter in your life. Uh, I have a dear friend who says, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different sized boats. I don't care if you are in a canoe or a raft or a yacht or pushing a, a tugboat upstream. Whatever boat you're on, make sure that you do so with a skipper by your side. And with that, I'm going to leave the screen. And Lisa, I'm turning it over to you. It's yours. Well, so if you're able to uh, come to the film festival to see a Holocaust journey lessons we learned, you'll appreciate the opportunity to learn about what caused the Holocaust, um, the um, what led up to the Holocaust, and how the Holocaust is one of many genocides that have happened. And when we have increased racism against Jewish people, as our film depicts, there's increased, unfortunately, in racism against all groups. So that's what our film addresses, and it will be shown at 10.30 on 
March 25th at the Cranford, New Jersey Cinema. And next up, John. Well, John, Anderson. You okay. Um, I want to thank all the people who worked on this film. There were so many hundreds of them and their names go by so quickly at the end. I want to thank Aaron Hoy, especially our director of photography. And I want to get, just suggest to people that they, if they love music, listen to the blues, keep the blues alive. It's kind of, it's not dying out, but this film on its own, isn't going to keep the blues where it deserves to be. It, it hurts, hits a certain spot in everybody's soul. And if you've never been exposed to it, Listen to a Charlie Muscle White record. Listen to a Barry Goldberg record, and I think you'll feel better about it. Uh, I'd, li I'd like to pick uh, John Huggins. Oh, well, hello. Thank you. Well, I mean, first of all, I'd like to thank uh, the panel. That was really awesome to share the time with you. And thank you, Richard. And I'd like to thank my the cast and crew of Sugar Crash. And I just want to say that, like, you know, making movies is really difficult, uh, no matter what kind of movie it is. So I just think it's really important just to be kind to yourself and be kind to others. So thank you. Uh, oh, Bob Sarles. Oh, uh, I want to thank Richard for having us on the show. Uh, I'd like to thank the Academy, but we haven't been nominated for anything, but I'll thank him anyways. Uh, and I'd like to thank Richard Foos for uh, hiring uh, my partner, Christine and I to help complete this film. I think it's an important film. Uh, I think it tells a, a missing story uh, about how uh, the blues was passed on from one generation to another. And uh, uh, I think it, it helps set the record straight. I hope the film uh, gets the, the wide release uh, that it deserves. And if you have a chance to see it at a festival, I hope you come out and see it. So, uh, and handing it off to James. Wow, thanks. I got the final word. Um, yeah, I want to thank the panel. Uh, it was great hearing about your films, and I look forward to seeing you uh, at the Garden State Film Festival. Um, if you uh, like uh, Boardwalk Empire or Downton Abbey or uh, The Queen or any of those kind of compelling period dramas, please watch our show. It's called Chateau Laurier, available on uh, Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and uh, Vimeo On Demand. And... Uh, Google Play. So if you if you search it online, you'll find it. Chateau Laurier, the series. It's a quick binge, six times ten minutes, um, and uh, it's a lot of fun. So thanks for having us. This has been amazing. I really appreciate it. And if the other panelists can still hear me, it was great meeting you. And I look forward to seeing you and your films at the Garden State Film Festival. Namaste.